I want to teach tonight. Actually, I have a mandate from God. Uh, we were in prayer yesterday for the church, and we prayed in tongues for a bit. And the Lord gave me the message for tonight, which I like that. It doesn't always happen that way. In fact, it rarely does. But I'm going to teach you how to repent. Because we all know we need to. But there is, there's, it's something you have to practice. Just like you've got to practice saying, I'm sorry. Any element of the heart has to be practiced and, in a sense, rehearsed till you get it. And once you learn how to repent, you don't forget. But that it doesn't mean we're always good at repenting. And what I'm going to say tonight is nothing new, but maybe it'll show you the mechanics. We're all very adept at saying, I'm sorry. But saying, I'm sorry, is not repentance. Now, we have kind of churched up and blended those terms, and, you know, I had to go and repent to them. Well, what you did is you apologized, but we call that repenting, but that's not what the Bible calls repenting. So we want to make a distinction between that tonight. We ought to all be excellent at saying, I'm sorry. We ought to all be excellent at saying, please forgive me, I was wrong. But that is not the same as repentance. And so we're going to make a distinction with that tonight. In a sense, I, when we were praying yesterday, I could feel the Spirit of God saying, all right, we've been applying heat on Sunday morning to us with these areas, first excuses, then laziness. Sunday morning will be stubbornness and pride. So we've got this heat upon us to change. And if you're not able to be here, you need to get those messages because they are what God is saying to our church from the Bible. And if you're called here, you're accountable for what goes forth. Even if you can't be here for work or sickness or travel, what have you, you're still responsible. So you ought to get those. But it just seemed to me yesterday as we were praying in tongues and the Lord was ministering to me that he said, all right, the fervency's on them, the pressure's on them, and now they need to know how to repent. Because we can say I'm sorry all day long, but that doesn't mean we've repented. And on, honestly, apologizing can be deceitful because you think you're right simply because you said I'm sorry. But can I be honest with you? Abusive husbands are very apologetic. I'm sorry, baby. I'm so sorry, baby. I, I didn't mean to black that eye or bust that nose. I'm so, I, I didn't mean to grab you like that, but he's going to do it again. So he's apologetic, but unrepentant. So there's a big difference. So let's start off. I'm trying to make one final note here. Turn, start, uh, turn to Hebrews 12. And let's look at a, a famous passage. Of course, if you know your Bible, almost every passage is famous. <laughs> you know, I realize we have more and more young people and new people like, you know, this famous passage, and they turn to it. I know they're going, I've never read this before in my whole life. <laughs> I don't even know where that book is in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 12. Let me read a few things that I've got because I do have notes and I want to make sure I get it all out. Repentance is not saying, I'm sorry. That's apologizing, and that's necessary. So I don't want to diminish that, but I want us to realize it's, that's not where repentance ends. It's where it starts. Repentance, biblically, is turning and going the opposite direction, never to return. That's what the word repent means, to turn and never go back. And we're all really good at sinning, and repenting and sinning and repenting and sinning and repenting, but that doesn't mean we ever repented. Because if we sin, repent, sin, repent, sin, repent, and it's the same sin, there was no element of repentance anywhere there. 
It was sin, I'm sorry, sin, I'm sorry. Sin, receive forgiveness, sin, receive forgiveness. But sinning and receiving forgiveness is not the same as sinning, receiving forgiveness, and never sinning again. And for hyper-grace people, repentance takes work. Work. And we're going to see that tonight. And I think that should encourage you that if you fall down and get up and fall down again, that doesn't mean you're a failure. It means you're working the process. Remember, Proverbs says, a righteous man falleth down seven times. That seven is that number of perfection. That means he just keeps getting back up and he just don't quit. You can be sad and sorry, but never repent. And tears mean nothing. You can be sad and sorry, but never repent. And tears mean nothing. Now, that doesn't mean all tears are bad by no means at all. There are truly times where tears are heartfelt, but every emotion can be faked. Every emotion can be insincere. Every emotion can be sinful. And yet every emotion can be genuine. Every emotion can be heartfelt. Every emotion can be faith-filled. Emotions are neutral. Our use of them is what gets us in trouble. But I want us to understand, as Americans, we are very emotional. Now, human beings are created to be emotional, but cultures around the world tend to run hot and cold with that. Some cultures are very emotionally stoic. Some cultures are very emotionally rich. You know, the French will kiss you on the cheek, and they just met you two seconds ago, and they share their hearts. And, and the Latins are very emotional, very heartfelt. Icelandic people are very hard and callous. They never show any emotion. Africans are somewhere in between. It's, it's, different cultures do it differently. As an American church, we are very emotional. And we equate emotions with heart change. And emotions don't mean there's a heart change. Emotions just come out of the current heart. Emotions don't indicate a heart change. Emotions are only coming out of the abundance of the current heart. That doesn't mean God won't touch you and you won't weep and sob uncontrollably. We've all had those experiences that are genuine moves of God where he touches you or you realize his goodness or you realize your sinfulness. And I think we, many of us have probably had those divine encounters where we sob uncontrollably and we don't even know where it's coming from. But it's God touching you and it's not you trying to manipulate anybody. It's not you saying you're sorry. It's just a heart of gratitude, a heart of repentance. So we get that. But I want you to know that just because you cried doesn't mean you've repented. It may just be you're just really sorry. And that's a good place to start. You need to be really sorry. But if you are struggling with the sin, you're not going to probably beat that thing overnight. Typically, when God delivers you, he delivers you from a sin when you first get born again or when you come back to Christ or get spirit-filled. There's these major areas where boom. And why he doesn't deliver every one of us of every one of our sins when we get saved or get spirit-filled or rededicated, I don't know. But he has to leave something that you got to cry out to help for. And the reason that thing hasn't fixed in your life is you have neglected him in there. And that's why he refuses to touch it because you need his help. You're not asking for it. So why would he get rid of it? Because you don't even hardly come to him right now as it is and you need him. So what happens if everything was fixed? You would need him less. And you're already convinced you don't need him much. So he leaves those traumatizing addictions, those traumatizing habits, those traumatizing weaknesses in you until you'll eventually hit rock bottom and say, oh, God, help. And as I've taught you before, every human being has a different pain threshold. Really, really dumb people have a really, really high pain threshold. Really, really smart people have a really, really low pain threshold. 
In this regard, it's good to have a low pain threshold. We don't want your rock bottom to be at the bottom of a 5,000-foot pit. We want it to be in a stump hole. <laughs> Little. <laughs> Amen. Repentance, and here's what I'm going to say, and we're going to prove it from the Word. Repentance must be sought out and found. And just because you begin to seek doesn't mean you ever completely find. Repentance must be sought out and found. Some, sometimes repentance is easier to be found than others. Sometimes it's much more difficult. Sometimes it's a 20-year search. But as we'll see tonight, all of our sin originates in our heart. And the quicker we can disciple our heart and change our heart, the quicker we can find repentance. Now, here's the cycle that I've observed my life go through and this church go through just as a pastor. And I'm sure every pastor has the same testimony. What will happen, generally speaking, is God will convict us of a sin or a boss or a preaching message or a sermon or the Holy Ghost. It will strike your soul and your heart or my heart is soft enough and humble enough to say, Oh, God. I'm a wretched man. Oh, God, I am a failure. Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you begin to walk softly before your God. And that humility takes that pressure off. And the second you begin to perceive after four or five days, a week or two, that the pressure's off, you are truly contrite. That means soft-hearted and, and sorry. But it doesn't mean you ever changed anything. And so what we end up doing is getting convicted and then returning and getting convicted and returning and getting convicted and returning and you never actually make any changes. You end up spending your whole life banging your head against the same rock and going nowhere. And that's not what the Lord wants us to do. It's not how he wants us to live. He doesn't want us to be a pill head the rest of our life. He doesn't want us to be a porn addict the rest of our life. He doesn't want us to hate our spouse the rest of our life or disrespect our parents the rest of our life. He doesn't want us to live in fear the rest of our life. He's expecting us to fall under his conviction because that's what it's there for and that be a catalyst that moves us in the direction of our discipleship, which means then you've got to start to change the situation. And the Lord, I'm sure, grows very frustrated convicting us over the same sin over and over and over again. And at some point, we begin to callous our heart against the effects of it. He has to ramp up the conviction. It has to get louder to get through our callousness. And in the end, it just quits working altogether, and he has to leave us alone to suffer. Because when he slew them, then they sought him. Conviction is good, but at some point you either do something with it or you have to suffer loss. Conviction is good, but at some point you either do something with it or spiritually speaking, the law of God says you have to suffer. His mercies are new every day, but they are not extending forever. He is long-suffering. He is not forever suffering. And I'm, I want to work on a message. It may take me a couple weeks with everything I've got going on right now. I want to call it what, um, no more nicer than Jesus. And I want to go through the Gospels and show how ruthless Jesus Christ is. Because we've somehow turned all those verses off and we only focus on the hugs and the kisses. 
But there's a time when Jesus Christ just says, I'm done. And he moves away. And you have to suffer in that season. Think about it like the prodigal. He took that grace, that wealth, and he was able to coast. And he, his rock bottom was a pig pen covered in fecal matter eating corn husks. Why didn't it stop before then? At some point, the father just turned him out and let him go. And the father no longer pursued him. So when the father turns you out, which is what the parable teaches, and leaves you to your own devices, you have to suffer. And you have to suffer loss. And I will also tell you, according to the cultural hermeneutic of that story, the fact that that son said, give me your inheritance, that means he comes back a second-class citizen. He is not restored to the same position. He's still the son. His inheritance is gone. There's nothing left for him once the father really does die. That tells us that when you sin, God convicts, you ignore it. He turns you out to suffer loss. You will suffer loss. And that suffering of loss will relegate you to a second class destiny. That's something we can extract from that parable in Luke chapter 15. We've been taught some kind of vibe over the last 30 years that you can repent anytime you want and come back and get right back in line. And it doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. It never will work that way. John Mark abandoned Paul and Barnabas in Crete. And it was 25 years before Paul said he was useful again. That's a second class destiny. What could John Mark have been for the 25 years Paul couldn't use him? So this is a serious season that we're in. Not maybe all of us, but I should say all of us, lest one of you two even say, well, it must not be me. If you're saying that, this is all for you. This is 100% for you. If any man think he stand, let him take heed lest he fall. So repentance must be sought out and found. Sorrow is not enough. Being sad is not enough. And I learned that our second year pastoring and that this church would quick, quickly repent, but in 10 days we'd be back doing the same sin again. And I realized in the spirit, this church has a good heart, but a lazy ethic. We have a soft heart, but we are inconsistent. And God, God just, this is not meant to be paddle ball. I mean, how horrible would tennis be if there was a string attached to the ball? God doesn't want to swat you and you come back. He wants to swat you and you go across and score something for him. But it seems like in our church, and it's not just us, it's just any stubborn church, it's just paddle ball for God. Whack, 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 whack. I'm sorry, I'm back again. I'm sorry, I'm back again. I'm sorry, I'm back again. I'm sorry, I'm sinning again. That, that's done. The Lord would like to take a scissor cut that thing and just sail it into the next county. But you got to stop just being sorry. There are some of you, I've dealt with you so much in private, I say, stop with the tears. I don't care about your tears. Stop apologizing. Your apologies mean nothing. It's just tinkle, tinkle, ding, dong. Sounding symbol, hollow gong. It means nothing. Because that's all you've been doing for 25 years is I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. James says, put up or shut up. Faith without works is dead. You say you've got faith, I'll show you mine. Don't just tell the Lord you're sorry. Show him you are. Like John the Baptist said, prove with a lifestyle change you're truly penitent. Because all this is just cheap talk and, and shallow emotions and, and walking softly before the Lord. He doesn't want you to walk softly before him. He just wants you to make a change. Hold your head up high and make a change. Because walking softly evidently isn't cutting it for us.
Repentance must be sought out and find. You can begin to seek it, but never quite find it. So you've got to make sure you seek it until you find it. And since this is the season we're in, you don't have to worry about any other calling of God on your life. This is it. You don't have to worry about the next business decision unless it was already in the works. You don't have to worry about who you're going to marry. This is what you're married to. This is what we're working on, getting the victory over these seven areas that in the nostrils of God, he looks at us, this is what he smells. Excuses, laziness, pride and stubbornness, obesity, lust issues, financial issues. This is the stuff I've harped on for 14 years. By this time, you could have three postgraduate degrees. I teach you more than a professor does. By now, you could have so many degrees but now it sounds like Hebrews. When the time has come that you ought to be teachers, you're not. You have become not a teacher, but one that has need of a teacher again. The elementary things. But I don't want to beat up on you tonight. That's Sunday morning. <laughs> I'm trying to puff you up with some encouragement, but this is the nature of the subject. Let's go to Hebrews 12. You should be there. Hebrews chapter 12. Look, uh, verse 15. I'm going to teach tonight. I got about three or four points. We'll hit them as we go. How to repent. Repentance is not the same as I'm sorry or sad. Repentance is turning and never coming back again. And that takes a, a consecrated decision and a discipline. And if you're not disciplined in your, most areas of your life, you won't be ever disciplined enough to repent. Repentance is an exercise of discipline. Because if you've been going this way of sin, this direction for 20 years, you can't turn that thing on a dime. You're going to have to put metrics and measurements and, and checks and balances and systems in place that help you turn that oil tanker of a life so that you don't ever go back again. God doesn't want to yell at that oil tanker and say, you're headed the wrong direction. And the whole tanker is like, mur, mur, which is to say, I'm sorry, and then keep going. He doesn't even need a mm, mm. All he wants to see is that thing begin to move to the left. And he'll say, they heard me. But when all you ever say is, I'm sorry, he's not convinced you heard him. Shut up and just change. You, you can tell you've been heard when they begin to change course. And so you can say you're sorry, but he's going to look for fruit. Verse 15, looking diligently. So that means it's our responsibility. All these commandments that put a responsibility upon our life undermine hyper-Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism says even the specks of dust are foreordained. And if that's the case, then God is a sick, twisted perv who would command you to make decisions that you can't make because he's not ordained you to make them. I will not serve a God like that. I'm thankful I don't. That's an idiot's God. That's another God. That's not my God. That's not my Savior. Your job and my job, because this is the imperative, the understood you, you look diligently. That is to, to look so carefully into your life. To, it literally is the episcopos or episcopio, to be a bishop over your own life. You are to be a bishop over your own life, to inspect it and take the oversight of it. That's what you're supposed to do. We would call that being responsible, <laughs> something this new generation of Americans is very allergic to. 
along with peanuts and gluten. <laughs> Looking diligently, that's one phrase in the Greek, be the bishop over your own life, lest any man fail or not partake of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. So it's your job to root out bitterness, unforgiveness. This is a heart condition. And when your heart is raw, everybody around you will be raw. Uh, I just recently talked to somebody and they wanted to come and repent to me. They said, I'm sorry, I listened to lies about you a long time ago and it poisoned my heart against you. And I said, I forgive you, you've done me no harm. You've not hurt me a bit. But what they did was they listened to somebody else's roots of bitterness and it defiled them and anybody else that would listen to them. This is why it's your responsibility to root out any bitterness, any unforgiveness, any offense you may ever find in your life. Your job is to become so bitterness-free, so offense-free, so petty-free that nothing phases you. I, you got to be able to look at folks and say, look, you're not going to offend me. You don't go, it's not going to hurt me a bit. Say what you want. Our life would be better if people could shoot us straight and we not fall apart. And thereby many be defiled, trouble you. So you got fail, trouble, defiled. If you don't look diligently, things are going to fail. Things are going to trouble. Things are going to be defiled. And it will be your fault. It won't be the preordained, predestined plan of God. Lest there be any fornicator. That's pornos in the Greek where we do get the word pornography. Or a profane person as Esau. No, it doesn't mean that Esau was a fornicator, but he was a profane person. And this word means that he treated the things of God as common, of little value. He, everything of God was just cheap to him. And we have to reject that attitude in our life. The, the house of God has to be sacred to us. Worship time has to be sacred to us. I don't see any way to pastor less than three services a week. As much as there is to learn and to be taught, I have no idea how seeker churches get by with one hour a week. And that includes the 25-minute sermonette. You're not making Christians in that church. You're making entertained, deceived folks. But so we don't even do three services a week. We do like six services a week with all the prayer services we have and pre-service prayer services and Sunday school and your care deacon prayer and everything else you come to. You ought to probably be here at least six or seven days a week. If not, if you're here once a week, you're a fifth of the person you're supposed to be. How does that make you feel? You're cutting me down. Buddy, you're cutting yourself down and you're full of excuses. And you missed that sermon because I already dealt with it. But here's the problem with coming to church so much. The sin of familiarity can creep in easily and we become profane. Oh, it's just Kylie leading worship again. Oh, it's just Pastor harping on this again. Oh, it's just another prayer line. Oh, it's just care deacon. And when you become like that and we all have to watch our hearts, we become an Esau. And we begin to treat the things of God as common and of little value. And when you do, you get nothing out of the service. This is why when I'm a guest minister, I'm more greatly esteemed and more greatly used of God than when I'm here. Because when I'm the guest minister, half the congregation has been listening to our pod school. Another third of the congregation is streaming us. They've read our books. They're listening to whatever we do. So I'm a celebrity and I'm not their pastor. So like, oh man, it's pastor Chris McMichael. Oh, we're so excited about this. But if I was with them six months, they'd fall into the same rut. 
Same, same way when we have our guests come in, you guys are like, man, that's the best thing all ever. I was like, I taught that for eight months last year. <laughs> My friend, Pastor Steve over at the river said, if you've traveled for more than 30 minutes, you're the expert. That's just how dumb God's people are. It's not a compliment to the church. He said, brother, if you're coming from more than 30 miles away, you're an expert. The, the people will love you because that's how dumb God's people are. Even though their pastor is the one that hears from God for them every day, knows how they eat the meat of God's word every day. But you bring in the guest minister, he's the greatest thing ever. And the pastor delivered the same message for six months and you refused to receive it from him because it was profane to you. The guest minister gives it to you in 45 minutes and it changes your life. What if you'd listened with that kind of intensity for six months last year? When you're a steward, everything you're given is precious to you. That includes the local service, local prayer service, local Sunday school, local worship. You get as much out of church as you want. And if you're getting nothing, it's because you are nothing. If you're just here, just tolerating your spouse, don't come back. If you're only here because your spouse comes, don't come here. That sounds mean. It's honest. It's honest. Amen. Because you're going to hurt yourself by being here because you're going to be judged for everything I taught you that you didn't listen to. Amen. Don't be like Esau, who was a profane person who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Actually, the Aquinos brought me lentils today. That jackleg Esau sold his birthright in Christ for a bowl of lentils, and the Aquinos hath tempted me today. It's okay. They were Puerto Rican lentils. They're actually pretty good. She, Pedro promised me. It's not lentil soup. I promise you. This is not soup lentils. I said, you promise? I promise. This is different lentils. If you don't like them, don't eat them. But, but you also said, but there's a lot of fiber in there, so be careful. <laughs> Esau sold the birthright, the promise, for a bowl of soup. And he had excuses. He came in from hunting. And he said, I am starving to death. I am near unto death. Please give me that bowl of lentil soup. And, and uh, his brother said, Jacob said, sell me your birthright. He said, what? You're kidding me. I'm starving to death here. He said, sell me your birthright. I'll give you this bowl of lentil soup. Dude, you just came in from hunting. Go, kill you. Go eat your deer. Lazy, full of excuses. That's our first two mountains we've covered in this church. Excuses and laziness will make you a profane person in the nostrils of God. And laziness will close doors in your life. And laziness, Esau wasn't starving to death. You know, he ate the, probably for breakfast or the night before. It takes 40 days to die of starvation. He's not starving. He's just full of excuses and he's a profane person. He says, well, what is it to me? It's not doing me any good. What is it to be a Christian? That doesn't do me any good. Here you go. Here's my birthright. You can have it. Just let me have that lentil soup. I mean, that's the dumbest man ever because it's lentils. It's not even Papa John pizza. It's not even El Tapatio. It's just, oh, hippie beans is what it is. Lentils is hippie beans. <laughs> yeah. For you know how that afterward, when he should have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. Profane people end up rejected. 
When you treat the things of God common, you end up rejected. That's all you got coming for you. When church is common, you're rejected. When you don't appreciate the word going forth, you're going to end up rejected. Your destiny will be rejected. Your kids will be rejected. Your ministry will be rejected. Your family will be rejected. That's all you got. That's the only reward you have. You sow to the flesh, you reap death. You sow to the wind, you reap a whirlwind. He was a profane person. He disrespected the precious things of God. In the end, when it came time to be promoted, he was rejected. He was cast out as apostate or vagabond. For he found no place of repentance. Now, this, that's what we got to focus on. There was no place to be found for him, which means he sought it. And in fact, it says, though he sought it carefully with tears. He was looking for the place to repent, but he couldn't find it. The word place there is the Greek word topos, where we get topography, topographic map. It means a special location, an exact location, and it implies that there's a place you have to get to. We understand it's in prayer. It's not a physical topography or topographic location. There's a place your heart has to get to in order to flip the switch of repentance. And it doesn't come by saying, Lord, I'm sorry. And that's where we deceive ourselves. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry. Oh, Lord, you're so right, Lord. That's a good place to start. There's a Chinese proverb I saw once in the Amsterdam airport in 1996. And it says, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. Repentance may be a thousand mile journey. Acknowledging you're wrong and dirty and sinful, that's the first step. But it's a place that you have to seek. And when the Lord comes and nails you or convicts you, that doesn't equal repentance. You've now got to get in his presence to find what it's going to take to turn things. The problem here with Cain, excuse me, Esau, is for years he had tra treated the things of God as common, profane, and, and without value. And he can't flip that switch overnight. He had sown to a foolish, soulish heart for so long. In an instant, he's got to find repentance, and it's impossible. So I, I'm just pointing this out so we can see that repentance doesn't come overnight. It's a place you have to get to through prayer, through fasting. Cephas has a hand up for a question. It's a place you have to get to uh, seeking God. The worst thing you can ever do is treat the things of God as common, to treat the things of God as flippant, to think, oh, that's just pastor, that's just church, that's just prayer service, that's just pre-service prayer, that's just, just corporate prayer, that's just care deacon prayer, that's just Sunday school. Uh, did you guys know we have Sunday school around here? I spend a lot of time writing curriculum that is pretty watertight. It's got some leaks in it because nobody's got perfect doctrine. I don't know why you don't come. How about I check the cameras to see who it is, and the next person who doesn't, you're teaching next month's curriculum, since you seem to know it all. Don't worry, you get to use the curriculum. I just want you to be able to teach it in 45 minutes and communicate something. Who's up for that challenge? See, that's you being profane. We don't have Sunday school around here because we have nothing else to do. It's by mandate of God. It's a time when we instill doctrine line upon line systematically. It's, the, it's when I'm the most disciplined in my teaching, and it's what, when we use the other ministers to teach as well. So when you live a lifestyle of skipping church and you come once a week, you're a profane person. You are as profane as Esau. You don't think the things of God are worth it. And so when you need repentance, you're going to step on the pedal and your car is going to stall. 
Uh, maybe we don't even know God well enough to know we can turn things around if we want to. But if we don't have a prayer walk or a life in the Spirit, we're not going to know how even gonna, to begin to repent because we don't ever seek God for anything. Church is churchtainment for us. This is our punch card. This is where we come because our spouse comes here. This is where we come because our kids like it. We're, we're totally missing. This is just a bowl of lentils to us. I mean, I, that makes me want to spit that some Christians come to the house of God and this is nothing but lentil soup to you. This is not manna. You're like the Jews. Our soul does load this light bread. And that's when God said, I'm done. Everybody 20 and older, guess what? You're dead to me. You want to die? You can have it. I'm going to use your kids. I just got to wait for you to die and I'll barely be able to use them because you've influenced them too much. There is that, that's Kairos, a time, a season when if you don't get it, it doesn't get. So that's a good question. I wasn't intending to go there, but I think we can see that. All right, let's move on because I got more to cover and we're, uh, we're, we're moving along too quick on time. He found no place of repentance though he sought it carefully with tears. This, this word uh, repentance, actually, the, go back to the word profane means disrespectful. It's another way to say profane. Treat things common. Just be disrespectful. This word for repentance, it means a change of mind. And this is the first definition in any Greek lexicon. And it lets us know the reason we were headed in the wrong direction is because our mind is wrong. And that's why we have to renew our mind. We have to renovate our mind. Not everything about your mind is wrong. You don't bulldoze the mind. You renovate the mind. And this is our first thing we do. I know you're taking a lot of notes. The first thing you do is you've got to study God's word and to figure out how sinful this thing is. If you're not repenting and changing your mind, it's because you don't realize how sinful this thing is. You've got to see how disgusting it is in the eyes of God. There are certain sins that not a single person in this church will ever do because you know how disgusting and sinful it is. You're convinced of it just as strongly almost as God is. And then there's everything else that every one of us here varies differently on. Our conscience is different. Our conscience is different about how we let our kids act. Our conscience is different on how we treat our spouse. Our conscience is different on how we handle our money. Our conscience is different on how often we come to church. Our conscience is different on how we dress when we come to church. There's all these things. But those are areas where our minds are not fully renewed in sync with the Word of God. The more renewed we are to the Word of God, honestly, the more alike we'll behave, the more alike we'll raise our kids. If, if we go back and bring up the whole social media thing, I was convinced of that 10 years ago. That was a wicked, egregious thing that would destroy children. And it took 10 years to convince some of you because my mind was over here already because you didn't know I was dealing with in private. I said, this is a cancer. Everybody else, their conscience was totally other places and, and even chewing me out behind my back because they disagreed with me. Well, disagree with me, but just don't ruin your life over it or your kids. It's a change of mind, changing the purpose. This is what the Greek also says for repent, changing the purpose you have formulated. When you repent, this is a cool expression in the lexicon. You change the purpose of life that you have spent time formulating. 
So the reason we have trouble changing the direction of our life is that we don't bother to go back to the chemistry lab and change the formula of our purpose. The reason you march one direction and you keep marching there is that you're doing it on purpose. This is your purpose. This is your formula. This is why you, this is what you think is right. Except you know it's not because God keeps nailing you to the wall over it, but you never bother to go back to the cook or in the kitchen to change the ingredients. So nothing changes. You just repent over the recipe, and next week you bring out the same recipe. And God says, I told you I hate that. I'm so sorry, Lord. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Look, he doesn't want sorry anymore. Fix the formula. Just fix it. I mean, how many times can you say I'm sorry and it just is worth nothing? Some folks say I'm sorry faster than we print fake money in this country. It has no value. God wants to see action. It also means an anxiety and uneasiness of guilt coupled together. I like this. An anxiety and uneasiness of guilt coupled together with the requisite reformation. Until there's a reformation, there's no repentance. Like the Protestant Reformation led by Luther and then carried on by Zwingli and Calvin and the Anabaptists. Something has to be reformed. It's one thing to be uneasy and guilty. I pray, when I pray for you guys that are struggling, I pray you're miserable till the change comes. That God would not let up on you. That that, that pressure on you changes things. Because it's one thing for me to harp on you, but my words will fade away. But if the presence of God can go home with you and make you miserable every time you want to look at porn, every time you want to waste money, every time you want to let your kids raise themselves, you're going to change that. And yet it's a shame that it takes those kind of goads or those kind of dog collars to train human beings. Shouldn't take that. But if that's what it takes, use it. It's better than losing the blessings of God. Reform your purpose, otherwise you haven't repented. That's what I'm adding. Reform your purpose, otherwise you haven't repented. One of the things we are still passionately dealing with in our church is how we're raising our kids. And I like, I've shared this with you. One of the ladies I worked with 20 years ago in the engineering realm, she said, I don't raise children, I raise adults. She was very matter of fact. She's a Christian lady, very matter of fact. I was like, okay, well, help me hear the difference, lady. She said, if I raise kids, they stay kids. If I raise adults, they become adults. Okay, I see the subtle difference. I'm not going to argue with anybody over that, but the nuance is there. She said, I'm not going to raise kids to stay kids. I'm putting a constant pressure on them so they become responsible human beings. If you're failing as a parent, you've not reformed your purpose in how you have kids. You can't be lazy and be a good parent. Lazy parents are not parents. And that is the testimony of some of you. You are lazy human beings and your kids are twofold more the child of laziness than you. And that's closing doors in their life, even in youth. Now, this may not be worth it to you, but if your kid isn't a hard worker, I'm never going to take them anywhere with me. And that may mean nothing to you, but I would love for my kids to travel with my pastor. But if I don't like my kids, I'm not going to give them over to my pastor. So if your kids are lazy, they're already going to miss out on some experiences they could have with their pastor. And even if they don't live here forever, they're going to go have to serve another pastor somewhere because that's how the kingdom works. But that may not be important to them because you taught them it wasn't important. 
So if you're failing with your kids, reform your purpose. If you're failing with your appetites, reform your purpose. I have a friend, everybody I think knows the name John Bevere, excellent author, has some of the best books on doctrine out there, some really critical messages. He's, he's probably 60 now, in excellent shape. And I've got a friend who was on staff with a bunch of fat pastors. And uh, he was telling me they had John Bevere in. <laughs> and uh, they're all ordering. And all these fat pastors, you know, the blah, 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 short tie and half of it's covered in food stains. They're ordering like the loaded baked potato French fries. They're ordering, you know, they got nine appetizers. I'm exaggerating, but not much. And they're ordering everything with, you know, just covered in food. And he orders salmon and asparagus and broccoli and a side of fruit. And they made fun of him. They're like, that all you get? And that's rabbit food there, Rev. And he said, well, I eat to live. I don't live to eat like you guys. <laughs> if you're fat, change your purpose when it comes to food. Food is not for comfort. Food is not to be your best friend. Food does not cure boredom. Food is given by God to provide a caloric intake so you can exist. And if you're fat, and almost all of us have a little bit, this means you are taking in too many calories and you've got to adjust your purpose concerning your food. If this is your area, study the Bible to see what God says about food so your mind can be in sync with his. Turn off Food Network. I mean, I, I've been in the third world watching Food Network, and I think these folks eat grub worms, and we're watching 400-pound women cook everything in butter. <laughs> Die of a heart attack at 38, missing two feet. It's pathetic. If you're overweight, change your purpose concerning food. Reform your purpose, otherwise you haven't repented. And so let me move on from that. So, and then this last word here, sought. He sought it carefully. In the, in the Greek, the word sought means he was begging for it. He was craving it. He demanded it. So he wanted it, but it was too little too late. He was trying to have faith for something. He had a small window to obtain it. And like Pastor Vaughn used to say, you can't build a house in a hurricane. And that's why every day we're drawing closer to God. Every day we're reforming our attitudes towards the things that are our weaknesses. You sin what you sin because of how your mind thinks about it. At Engrafted Word Church, we are good at feeling guilty and sorry, but we struggle to move towards the place of repentance. We walk softly before God but we walk softly without ever reforming our purpose. And so we walk softly until we feel like God's no longer dealing with us and now he's no longer dealing with us and we think, wow, okay, we're good then, but nothing's changed. But you don't understand, you just wasted three weeks of his grace to make a reformation in your life. And the reason he's left you alone is because he gave you spiritual meat and you were supposed to go in the other direction. In my book right now, I'm working, about, I'm working on Elijah's juniper and there he sits under this juniper tree wishing he was dead and the angel appears and prepares a meal of hot bread on these coals and then some uh, water to drink and he says, arise, eat. He arises, eat, goes back to sleep because that's what depressed people do. They just want to sleep their problems away. The angel strikes him again, gets up, says, eat and go in this thy might 
for your journey's too far. And so Elijah gets up and he goes on that spiritual meet 40 days towards Saudi Arabia, where he had just come from Jezreel. He goes 40 days out of the will of God. He's four days south of Jezreel. That's Samaria. That's north. It's Israel. He's gone to Beersheba, which is Beersheba the, southern, Beersheba, the southernmost. And he goes a further day into the wilderness. God deals with him and then leaves him alone for 40 days. That is a total pattern of God nailing us in a church service and then leaving us alone because he gave us the spiritual meat we needed to get back where we needed to be. And when we see Elijah again, he's on Mount Horeb, Moses's mountain, way out of his assignment. He's called to Israel. He's not called to Judah. He's called to the northern kingdom of Israel. He's not even in Judah. He's in Saudi Arabia, down near Egypt, near the Red Sea. And the next time God says, talks to him, he says, what are you doing here? And that's the trouble we get into as a church. God nails us and deals with us. We go on the strength of that meat 40 days in the wrong direction because he leaves us alone for 40 days because he's expecting you to get your butt back in Jezreel and finish the last job. And what does Elijah do? He goes back to his old excuses. They hunt for my life. No, they don't. You killed them all. I'm the only one left. No, there's not. There's a hundred hidden in a cave. Why are you lying? What's your excuse? And here we see Elijah get dethroned. And God says, go anoint your replacement. I'm going to use somebody else now. I'm tired of your excuses. And I'm tired of you only saying I'm sorry. We are good at walking softly, but never reforming the purpose that's hurting our life. What we need to change our mind is a, a revelation of our personal sin. So here's the second thing you can do. Number one is study God's view on your sin. But number two, ask God to give you a revelation of your sin. Ask God to show you how, how he sees it, how he smells it, how he views it. Would you want your children to marry someone like you? Then change. Ask God to give you a revelation of your sin. We're Americans. We are masters of self-justification. And then we can get online and find a chat form of everybody that thinks like us. And we can encourage ourselves in an evil matter. And find a hollow echo chamber of why we're so awesome. And find 16 verses taken out of context why we don't need to change it. Though you know full well God is tired of it. Ask God to give you a revelation of your sin. Because if you can see it, man, you'll reform things quickly. You'll never go back again. I mean, there's, there's certain things, certain sins that are so disgustingly egregious to me, the thought of them makes me just cringe. But there's other things that aren't that bad to me, and when they're not that bad to me, I'll tolerate them. Years ago, I was struggling with the personal sin. I was permitting some things in my life, and I was even justifying it. And I had a dream, and in this dream, I was on this high mesa, like, like you know, Arizona, one of these mesa-like Monuments National Park out in Arizona. But these mesas are floating. And I remember thinking in the dream, oh, I'm cool, I'm on a mesa, and it's moving. And off in the distance, there's this dragon, this huge green dragon, and it's on a mesa too. And that dragon wants to get close to me, but as long as it looks like a dragon, my mesa moves at equidistant around it, so it can't come anywhere near me. 
But that mesa, excuse me, that dragon begins to morph into a woman, something attractive. And the more it looks appealing, the closer I allow our mesas to get. But if, if this thing retro, regrades or retrogrades back to more of a dragon, then we, we spread further apart. And then this thing almost becomes fully this attractive woman, but it's green and kind of scaly. And that's the closest I let this thing get to me. And I woke up and I instantly knew I'm justifying sin. And the more I can justify it, the more I'll let it into my life. And I said, Lord, I repent. I, you don't have to ever address this with me again. It's sin. You say it's sin. I'll never try to church it up. I'll never try to dress it up. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We'll permit anything we can call God a liar on. And so whatever you allow to remain in your life, you're saying, God, you're wrong on. Now see how that's going to go when your life lives in mockery to him. How is it going to bless your family when your parenting mocks God? When your money mocks God? When your health mocks God? When your eye appetites mock God? When your food appetites mock God? How is that going to go for your life? Because he only honors those that honor him. And most of you in this church are very well trained you know what's expected of you, but you don't give it to God. You just, you're, you're abusing him. You're like a welfare recipient. You expect Uncle Sam to cut you the next blessing check. And he's about to cut that thing off. He's about to dry that thing up. Get a revelation of your sin. See how God views these things. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's throw this up. Schmitty in the New Living Translation. This modern generation squawks that preachers aren't more encouraging. I think those folks are idiots. Is that encouraging? (laughs) You know, one of my reputations is I just tell it straight. I think the inverse of that is I lie. So which would I prefer? To be known as that guy that shoots it straight or the guy that lies and calls it encouragement. You can encourage without lying, but not much these days. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, let's begin in verse 8. I am not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful to you for a little while. Stop there, Josh. I am not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you. What is that? That's 1 Corinthians. That epistle, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 7. That epistle is full of more rebukes than most of the other epistles combined. It is nothing but just getting spanked. And the church has to sit there while the pastor reads that letter. And that thing's 16 chapters long. And every chapter swats them. (laughs) there's a lot of doctrine in there, but most of it's in the form of don't be this way. So it's a severe letter. He says, I I am not sorry that I I sent that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful to you. So you mean Paul knew full well that epistle that he wrote inspired by the Holy Ghost was going to bring pain to a congregation. Well, I thought I was supposed to be encouraging. I thought I was supposed to make you feel like a million bucks. I thought I was supposed to just make you feel like HGTV. If that's the church you want, you don't belong here. Leave. Paul said, that Holy Ghost came upon me and I knew it was going to bring you pain. I like the New Living Translation. It's almost as good as doom. (laughs) Like we saw Sunday night. Next verse. 
Now I am glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. See, sometimes you just have to hit stupid really hard to get it to change. You don't have to be that way, though. It shouldn't take pain to cause you to change. It should take a love for God. But some folks are so dim, so selfish, so stubborn, they have to suffer loss. Not because it hurt you. I am glad I sent it because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. So you were not harmed by us in any way. Don't blame me, Paul says. That was the spirit of God bringing pain to your life. And I'm glad it hurt you because that pain brought about necessary repentance. Why couldn't they repent without it? Just a stubborn kind of people. Now, if Paul had said, God bless you. God has a plan for you. He's got promises for you. He wants to be good to you. He'd have totally been a liar because it wasn't what the Holy Ghost was saying. What the Holy Ghost was saying was going to bring pain. And unfortunately, the Corinth church was in reputation so that only pain would bring about the necessary change. He didn't have to address any church like he did Corinth. So not everybody needs to hear things that hard, but I want you to see the scriptures. It, is, it produces the sorrow God wants his people to have. We need to be able to produce that sorrow, not tears, that sorrow, and it shouldn't take pain. The only reason it takes pain is because you're that stubborn. That shouldn't be our reputation, though. We'll deal with that Sunday morning when we address uh, uh, pride and stubbornness. Next verse. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin. So notice it's a leading so that comes back to that giant tanker ship that slowly moves. It leads us away. A godly sorrow leads us. That again confirms that repentance is a process. Repentance is something we seek after and we start working ourselves into it. We start changing our mind. We change our purpose. We reform our attitude. And so that we're led away from sin and the res it results in salvation. I don't believe that means eternal salvation. It's going to be the Greek word sozo, which means deliverance, healing, prosperity, provision, protection, etc. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Cry, 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 cry. Which lacks repentance, which is everything we do, results in spiritual death. Being sorry but never repenting only brings death. And that's the kind of repentance we're familiar with. It's the kind of thing that's making God irritated with us. Because he's dealing with us on the same thing again and the same thing again. And, the, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But what we're saying is we're sorry, but we don't ever repent. And here you see very clearly spelled out the kind of repentance most Christians practice. Paul said by the Holy Ghost, it doesn't bring salvation. It brings spiritual death. That is why we must learn to repent. Why do we keep going back to our vomit like a dog? Why does God wash us and the next day we're back in our, in our wallowing in our mire? Peter says, if that's our testimony, it would be better we'd never been saved. Those are hard verses. But those are New Testament written to ch uh, churches and Christians. What, do I have a next verse? I don't know if it applies or not. I don't think it does. Verse 11. Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. So here's what real godly sorrow does. It produces earnestness which means you're no longer meh, meh, apathetic, cookful, meh. Godly sorrow will produce earnestness. 
such concern to clear yourself, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal, and such a readiness to punish wrong. It's like it lit a fire under a dead religious church. Man, there's a zeal in them again. Man, they're fired up. They were actually excited to see Paul for a change, and he just chewed their rear end. Wow, you show that you have done everything necessary to make things right work. But look at that. The pain of a hard word elicited an emotional response that ignited a fire that, that obeyed God and led them away from sin towards true repentance. If you haven't changed, you've not repented. You've only laid up to yourself deception and spiritual death. Now, I'm not saying you're going to hell. I don't interpret it that way. But spiritual death means no ministry, no anointing, no favor, no joy, no fruit, no love, no peace. Death. You can go to heaven and just show up there half dead. Your marriage dead, your kids dead. You're just a dud. That's not what, how we're supposed to do this thing. So let me go back. Verse point one, study God's view of sin to the point that it disgusts you. Study what the Bible says about obesity till you're disgusted with yourself, not fat shaming you, but whatever it takes to beat this thing. Like I said, if you can lose two to three pounds a week, which is a healthy way to do it for the next six weeks, you can be 18 pounds or so down, right? Six times 12, two to three, it can be 12 to 18. That's a good way moving in the right direction. You have to, in studying and, and asking God to give you a revelation of sin, you've got to reset your value system. You won't have trouble repenting when you see the sinfulness of sin. What's the space fuel? Hydrazine. Hydrazine. You could play with a bottle of really cool substance just so long as you didn't know it was hydrazine. I think that's right. Or know what hydrazine could do to you. But the second you realize it'll kill you if it touches you, you drop that thing and leave the premises as quick as possible. Same with mercury. You know, most of you, maybe you sleep through service because you're old enough to have played with mercury too much as a kid. Our kids would love to play with mercury. Those of us that know better, you don't play with mercury. It messes with your genes and not your Levi's, the ones you give your kids. When you understand the danger of what you're doing to destroy your destiny, it's not going to be hard to repent. You just still think you're blessed. You're a fool because you're not blessed. You can't see that you're like Samson. You're taking one long nap and you may wake up without the power of God. And you're barely making it with the anointing on you. What will you do if it lifts? Romans 2.15, just write this down. We said this is where it talks about the evidence of the word written upon their hearts, their Hearts either accusing or else excusing them. So we'll just say it this way. Train your conscience to accuse you in these areas, not excuse you. Train your conscience to hate the sin you're dealing with. That's how you repent. This is all still part of number one and number two. Your children will share your lived convictions, not your theoretical ones. Your children will, will share your lived convictions. That is, what you live in front of them, that's what they become. If your kids are lazy, you're lazy. If your kids are fat, you're fat. If your kids make excuses, you make excuses. If they lie, you lie. It doesn't matter what you confess with your mouth. It's what you live with your life. 
because this is about reforming a purpose. Now, Psalm 51, last passage, number three and four, right here. How, how do I repent? We took more time than I thought we would on those first couple points. Psalm 51, David's psalm after he is judged for Uriah the Hittite's murder, Bathsheba's pregnancy and adultery. We'll read this whole thing real quick. Verse 1, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Psalm 51, verse 2, wash me throughly from mine iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Number th- verse 3 is number 3 in our list. For I acknowledge my sins, my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Actually, I got it as number three and four. Acknowledge your sin, be honest with God, and keep your sin ever before you. Not to the point where it condemns you, but you can see I've not beaten this thing yet. Don't keep it in front of you as if you're participating with it, but you hold it there in front of you knowing I am still capable of this. I am still tempted by this porn. I'm still tempted to go into debt. I'm still tempted to lie. I'm still tempted to embezzle, whatever it is. I'm still tempted to make excuses. David said, I acknowledge my sin. It's ever before me. He's keeping it in front of him. He had a woman issue. Solomon inherited the woman issue a thousandfold. David only had seven wives. Solomon said, I'll do better than that, Dad. You can count on me. How's a thousand sound? Not good, son. Not good at all. Number three is be honest with God. Acknowledge your sin. Talk to him about it every day. This isn't, you know, when, when you are, when you're insecure, when you're petty, that's not a good word, fearful, timid, you don't want to acknowledge your sin. You'll start using scriptures out of context. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far as you remove my sin from me, and I don't have to acknowledge it. I, I press on those things ahead. I forget those things that are behind. No, 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 sweetie, they're not behind. They're still in your life today. Now, if you've got the victory over it, you can apply those verses. You don't have the victory over it, you have to address them. God won't ever bring it up. Yeah, he will. And he is right now. You're sticking your head in the sand while the roaring lion is creeping up on your rump. So don't abuse scripture. Find proper ones to use. And if it's still an issue, bring it before the Lord every day. Lord, you know that this is my Achilles heel. Lord, you know alcohol still tempts me. But Lord, you know if I get in that restaurant and I smell it, man, I get to salivating and I get to thinking those thoughts. Have mercy on me, Lord. That is honesty before God, and that keeps his grace upon you. That's you knowing where you're weak, where you can fail, and that's you rolling those cares over on the Lord and getting him involved in that. When you start acting like something you're not, you're going to fall mightily. I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So that's number three and four. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that thou mightest be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. If you'd stop making excuses and stop misusing scripture, God could speak to you more clearly in this situation. Behold, I was shaped in inequity and ascended my mother conceive me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you shall make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. All of this is a process. All of this is David seeking repentance. 
All of this is David marching out of the valley of the shadow of death that he made for himself, and he's seeking God to get this back in his life again. He went to a very, very dark place to murder Uriah and cover up the, uh, um, the baby and the pregnancy and the adultery. It's going to take him a while to come back. Let's keep reading. Hide your face from my sins. Excuse me, uh, verse 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. That doesn't mean your bone bones. That means the soul. That's a Hebraism for the things that keep you strong. That's the soul. When God convicts you, he breaks your soul. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my inequities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right or a constant spirit within me. A constant, a steadfast, a prosperous, another translation says, an erect or upright spirit. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And I like the new versions, the modern one says, King James says, uphold with me my free spirit. Sustain me with the desire to obey. That is the process of finding repentance. He's praying, God, my sin is still before me. The baby's dead. Uriah's dead. I'm not dead, but all hell is coming against me, and I still have a woman issue. Can you imagine? But sustain me with the desire to obey. That is finding repentance. You can't just say, I'm sorry, and think it's done. The main mission when you're in sin is not to, re- to apologize for the sin, it's to change direction in life. Everything else hinders on changing that direction. Because if all you ever do is say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and you keep marching in the same direction, the wages of sin is death. I would say we'd add number five, pray that God would sustain you with the desire to obey. That's one of the things we pray almost every service. Eyes to see, ears to hear, heart to understand, and a desire to do, or the drive to do. After that, verse 13 says, then he'll be qualified to teach transgressors, and sinners shall be converted. After he's dealt with the sin, then he can be delivered from blood guiltiness, oh God. Notice he's not delivered from blood guiltiness or the, the, the conviction of it, the shame of it, till he's truly repented of it. That guilt is good for your soul till you change. We've been taught such a, a curveball on guilt and shame, but a little bit of it is good to keep you motivated. The hyper grace is crept in. The hyper grace, that's the grace that says you don't ever have to apologize, you don't ever have to repent. That's heresy. Not until verse 14 does he say, deliver me from blood guilt, shame, embarrassment. O God, thou God of my salvation, my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For you desire not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou desirest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou will not despise. So we study the word. This is how we repent. Let's review. We study the word to see how God hates our sin, which they are habitual sin, the thing we struggle with. We ask God. Number two, we seek God to give us a revelation of that sin. How bad is it, Lord? How do you view this thing? Because obviously I'm justifying it. Number three, we, uh, we're honest with God. We don't act like it's 
a little thing. We acknowledge that sin. We keep it. That's number four. We keep it before us. We keep it before us. If it's your weakness, you can't go acting super religious and say, oh, no, no, I'm, a, I'm not a sinner saved by grace. I'm a born-again one. Yeah, you're a born-again one who is not going into the promised land. So quit acting like you got the victory when you don't. Uh, Word of faith got into a weird ditch where we just refused to accept reality. We denied facts because we had to have a positive faith confession. We had to, have a, we had to be faith and faith and faith. Yeah, I'm in faith. I got issues. Pretty sure about that but they're only going to get help if I focus on them. So you're honest with God. You keep your sin ever before you until you get the victory over it. This is like beating sickness and disease. If you're fighting cancer, you have to acknowledge that it's there every day because you got to make the next chemo appointment. You got to take the next blood test. You've got to keep it ever before you. Otherwise, you won't keep your faith applied to it. If you start denying there's a problem, why would you ever activate faith? So we don't deny, we don't accept cancer, but we don't deny its existence if it's attacking a person's body. But the only way you'll ever apply faith to it is if you realize it's an enemy and it's in your tent. Same thing with the sin that we can't get the victory over. We don't deny it. Oh, I got dominion. No, you don't. It's got dominion over you. No, you say, yeah, I still deal with this. I'm struggling with it. When I get the victory over it, I'll let you know. But right now, I know I don't have the victory over it. I'm, I'm wrestling with this thing. And by faith and prayer and discipline and fasting, I'll whip this thing. I'm repenting. I'm turning this tanker around, but it's not turned around fully yet. Until your ship and your life is pointed in the right direction, you can't act like everything's okay. So number five is you pray Lord, sustain me, verse 12. You sustain me with the desire to obey. Josh, can you pull that up in the New Living Translation, Psalm 51, verse 12? I don't know what it says in the NLT. Let's just see what that says together. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and uphold me. You'll never have joy when you know you're battling sin constantly and you're not truly getting the victory over it. Psalm 51, verse 12, New Living Translation says... Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Make me willing to. He's having to pray, God, make me. Because if you don't submit to that, he's not going to make you. Make me willing to obey you. Sustain me with the desire to obey. So let us not. If I can summarize all this, I'm done. Let me summarize all this and say, what this church, and maybe this is every church, I don't know, but I know how God holds us in reputation. Maybe not every one of you here. Some of you are newer. Some of you are old school. We are really good at getting under conviction and acknowledging that we have messed up or things aren't right. And we walk softly under this, our might. We go in the strength of this food for 40 days, but we don't ever attack the problem in that strength. We run from God to an old revival, Mount Zion, Mount Horeb. And when we get there, the next time God speaks to us, he's not happy. Why are you here? This is not what I anointed you for under that juniper tree. Why are you here? This was a total misappropriation of that spiritual food because you're not back dealing with Jezreel, Jezebel, and her prophets. Why are you here? And he never gets to finish his assignment. He gets to find his replacement. I've been saying that your excuses train your replacement. Your laziness trains your replacement. You will be replaced. Maybe the mercy of God is you never know that you were never selected. 
because it would be miserable to watch your replacement take over and you have to sit there the rest of your life and know that should be me, but it's never going to be. That's judgment too. Off the quiet. So to motivate you to say, oh God, I'm getting after this and I'm staying after this. Now here's the other deal. I'll stay on you as long as the Lord wants me to, but it should not take me holding your hand to get you to walk with your God. If I have to, you don't qualify to walk with God. You should only need a personal trainer for a couple months till you get it. And then you've learned something from the personal trainer and then you can do it. There's a problem when you always want to be held by the hand. Because at some point you're supposed to grow up and be the trainer for other people. Or you fall back into Hebrews 5. When the time has come that you should all be masters, you have become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. Because everyone that exercises their senses to discern good from evil, that's they need meat. But what he's telling the Hebrews is you haven't exercised what you've been taught. You've just been letting somebody else hold your hand been riding somebody else's coattails. That doesn't work. You've got to walk with God for yourself.